Good morning and welcome to our service of worship here at First Church of New Knoxville on this Independence Day weekend. We're going to begin our service with a prelude. Thank you, Kay. Thank you, Sharon, for that beautiful prelude this morning. Welcome once again to our worship service here at First Church in New Knoxville. We're so glad that you have decided to join us as we worship the Lord together this morning. There's a few announcements that I want to highlight for us before we uh, continue on in our worship service. Uh, First of all, again, welcome to those that are listening on the radio and watching on Facebook Live. What a great opportunity to continue to to minister to those uh, who are not physically here with us in the the sanctuary. I know many of you are part of our church family that are choosing to stay home, and we want to, again, acknowledge and respect that decision, and we're so glad that we're able to worship together in this way as well. Uh, We also know that there's there's many of you that maybe are listening or watching that aren't uh, directly connected to our church family, and we're so glad that you are worshiping with us as well today. A couple announcements again, as I mentioned. Uh, if you are not with us here in the sanctuary this morning, you can access our bulletin online at firstchurchnk.org. It's got uh, the announcements I'm referring to, as well as our order of worship for this morning and the lyrics to the songs that we'll be singing together. Tonight, there is no junior or senior high youth backyard Bible study, so uh, look for, for more uh, information to come about things that are coming up, such as the outdoor movie night at Jake and Tori's house. That's going to be happening this Wednesday on July 8th at 9 p.m. Uh, so uh, youth, come, at, come to Jake and Tori's at 9 o'clock on July 8th. Uh, bring a friend. It'll be a good time of, of fellowship that evening. Next Sunday, July 12th, from 6.15 to 8.15, uh, we're invited to join the United Methodist Church here in New Knoxville for the family pool party at the Wapakoneta Public Pool. Again, that's next Sunday, July 12th, from 6.15 to 8.15. Invite family, invite friends to, to come and, and uh, join us as we fellowship together and have a good time and uh, hopefully nice weather. 
Uh, all are welcome. There will be some food available in the picnic area. You're invited to bring a dish to share if that is something you'd like to participate in. Uh, churches will provide hot dogs and those sorts of things as well. Uh, we hope everyone can join us for an evening of fun and fellowship. Uh, another announcement I want to highlight for us is a men's retreat that is happening in September from September 24th through September 27th. This is a men's retreat that Faith Alliance Church in New Bremen uh, is doing, and we've been invited to join them and participate with them in this. Uh, there are some brochures that are available uh, at the info center here in the sanctuary, and there's an announcement in your bulletin to read a little bit more up on it. Uh, it's a great opportunity for, for men to, to gather together and to, to study God's word together and, and just grow in and deepen those relationships as men of Christ. Uh, the retreat is in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Uh, and again, that is Thursday, September 24th through Sunday, September 27th. Uh, the cost is $200 a person that covers the, the lodging as well as the food for the weekend. And uh, I encourage you to, uh, if you want more information, reach out to myself or Pastor Trent at Faith Alliance. And, uh, and the due date uh, for signing up for this is the end of this month, so the last Sunday in July. Uh, we encourage you to, if you want to participate, to let us know at that point. Uh, again, more information, feel free to reach out to me or Pastor Trent and look forward to a great opportunity to fellowship not only with, with other men from our own church, but also extending that and, and meeting some people from Faith Alliance as well. Uh, there's several other announcements I encourage you to take a look at in your bulletin, but at this time I invite you, if you're able, to rise and join us for our call to worship this morning. Call to worship is taken in part from Psalm 89, verses 1 through 14. I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth I will make your faithfulness known through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, and that you have established your faithfulness in heaven itself. You said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your line forever and make your throne firm through all generations. The heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the holy ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You, Lord, are mighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. You rule over the surging sea. When its waves mount up, you still them. You crushed Rahab like one of the slain. With your strong arm, you scattered your enemies. The heavens are yours, and yours also the earth. You founded the world and all that is in it. You created the north and the south. Tabor and Hermon, sing your joy, sing for joy at your name. Your arm is endowed with power, and your hand is strong, your right hand exalted. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Love and faithfulness go before you. I invite you to continue to stand and sing with us our first praise song, How Great is Our God.
Amen. Amen. You may be seated. This time I'd like to invite forward Maria Lammers for our children's chat this morning. Okay. Where are my little people? Can you stand up? We have a few. That's awesome. Hey, how many of you saw fireworks recently? Any of you guys seen fireworks recently? Why do we have fireworks? Jojo, why do we have fireworks? To celebrate. Exactly. What are we celebrating? Reagan. Our country's birthday. Exactly. We celebrate the 4th of July for our, to celebrate our country's birthday, our, and we sometimes call it Independence Day. Okay, now I want you to think back, think of another holiday that we celebrate, and that's Thanksgiving. Who were the first people to celebrate Thanksgiving? The pilgrims. Why did the pilgrims want to celebrate Thanksgiving? Because they were thankful? They were thankful that they were able to come to the new world, right? Now, do you remember why did they come to the new world? Remember back from Thanksgiving? Because they, because they didn't want to follow the king's rules and they wanted to go to their own church. Remember when we talked about that in preschool? Yeah. They wanted to worship God the way they wanted to. So part of the reason many of our ancestors came here to the new world was so that they could worship God the way they wanted to. In 1776, when our fathers were writing the Declaration of Independence, they wrote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Who's our creator? Who created us? God did. Exactly. So, God was very important to them when they wrote the Declaration of Independence. And they wanted to include God in how our country was made. We have a lot of reminders that our country was founded with God in mind. We sing a lot of songs that have God and country in them. And our prelude this morning was America the Beautiful. And the final verse says, God shed his grace on thee. And crown thy good with brotherhood from sea to shining sea. And at the end of our service, they're going to play my country tis of thee. And the final verse goes like this. Our Father's God to thee, authority of liberty to thee we sing. Long may our land be bright with freedom's holy light. Protect us by thy might, great God, our King. Now, Reagan. In the morning when you're in school and Mrs. Flutterjohn comes on the announcements and at the end you all stand up, what do you say? The Pledge of Allegiance. That's right. Every day you say the pledge and you're reminded that our country was founded one nation under God. And the Pledge of Allegiance is 31 words. And it goes, and let's take a look at those words. I pledge allegiance. A pledge is like a promise. Allegiance means to be loyal or true to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands. A republic is like our government, a government in which the people elect their leaders, one nation under God with liberty and justice for all. Justice is fairness. Liberty is freedom. So, If we break it down into simpler terms, when we say the Pledge of Allegiance, this is pretty much what we're saying. I promise to be true to the flag of the United States of America and to the government for which it stands, one nation under God, which cannot be divided with freedom and fairness to all. So, as we celebrate this Independence Day weekend, I want you to remember that there are men and women who fought so that we could live in this country and go to church where we want to go to church and pray when we want to pray. And I want us to remember that God was part of our country from the very beginning. So let's pray. Dear God, thank you for the freedom that we enjoy in our country. We are thankful for those who paid the price for that freedom. But even more important, we thank you for the freedom we have 
because Jesus was willing to pay the penalty for our sins. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Maria. I'm going to throw you all for a loop here. Instead of going into our next song, I'd like to take this time to go into prayer together this morning. Um, I, I appreciate what Maria said, and I wanted to just follow up there. She actually had written down just what I had written down as well, uh, this all-important line from the Declaration of Independence, which was adopted 244 years ago yesterday, and that is that all we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Right? Those, are the, those are the ideals that we as a country strive for, and that's what I pray this morning, that we would, uh, not only as, as Americans, but as Christians, be able to strive for for ourselves and for others. You know, we've been blessed in, in so many ways as a country, and I want to encourage you to not take those for granted not, and not take them lightly. As Maria pointed out, the, the freedom to gather here and worship as we see fit as Christians is, is something that many of our brothers and sisters in Christ around this world do not have and, and must gather in, in secret and under the threat of persecution. And so I want to encourage us as, as Americans, but also even more importantly as Christians, to not neglect those freedoms that we have. And, and certainly, as our, as our founding fathers pointed out in the Declaration of Independence, acknowledge God as the source of those freedoms, right? He is the one who has created us and he has given us the ability to worship him and to pursue him and in, in doing so, love God and love our neighbors as ourselves, right? That's what, that's what this is all about. And, and so I want to encourage you, again, as you think about the freedoms that we enjoy as Americans, let's, let's not take them for granted, but let's thank God for those gifts and, uh, and let's use them not only for our benefit, but also for the benefit of others, that we may be a blessing to those that we encounter. So with that, I want to take time this morning. If you recall, our National Day of Prayer was back in May. Um, and at the time, we talked about it, encourage you to be in prayer. And we printed a prayer in the bulletin. Uh, and so I, as part of our pastoral prayer this morning, I want to go ahead and pray that prayer with you once again and then continue on and pray for those things we normally pray for. So I invite you at this time to pray with me. Lord, we exist to give you glory. We exist because of your glory. And in your glory as our creator, redeemer, and sustainer, we give you thanks and praise for every breath and moment you have given us. We repent of our sin for all the shameful things we've done against you and for our silence when we did not speak up to proclaim your name, profess your word, or protect and practice your will. We ask your forgiveness. We pray that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will spread across our nation and the entire earth as we seek your kingdom and righteousness, as we walk in obedience to you and in humble unity love one another. Jesus, the Bible says that you are the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. You have taught us to pray, commanded us to love, and commissioned us to share your gospel and grace. Your glory fills our hearts and families. It overflows into our neighborhoods, workplaces, campuses, churches, entertainment and media. We give thanks for our military and ask that your glory would spread to and through them as they preserve freedom around the world. We pray for our government that all of our leaders and laws would be filled with your glory and they would magnify your holy word and honor your will and ways. We pray that your grace and glory would spread to bring hope to the hopeless and love where there is hurt and hate. God, use us as we pray your promise that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And Lord, this day we do pray for our nation that you would, that you would, uh, Lord, that you would, your will would be done. Uh, that our leaders from the national to the state to the local level would have a hunger and thirst after your righteousness because your word promises that they will be filled. And Lord, may your church, Lord, not just First Church of New Knoxville, but all of the body of believers across this nation and world, may we be a light uh, in a dark place. We, may we glorify your name, Lord. May we live such in such a way that people see you and glorify you, Lord, because that's what it's all about. Lord, we ask for, for you to be with those who are hurting, Lord. Uh, we continue to pray for our, our nation and our world that's been affected by this coronavirus pandemic. Uh, Lord, we pray for the families of all those who have lost loved ones. On a global level, we've, the, the death toll is now 524,918. And here in the United States, 129,434 individuals have lost their lives. Lord, each Number there represents a family that is hurting, that is grieving. 
Uh, and Lord, we acknowledge as well that there are others who have, who have gone before us, Lord, not as a result of the coronavirus, but uh, for other reasons as well. And so we pray for strength and comfort and healing for those families as they grieve. And Lord, thank you that we grieve not as those who have no hope, but as those who know that, that in Christ we have been redeemed and forgiven and that, we will all, that your people will experience, Lord, eternal life in your presence forever. And we thank you for that good hope and that sure promise. Lord, we pray, um, Lord, pray that, that over the next months, Lord, not knowing where, what all will be happening and where we'll be going, Lord, with, uh, with our world. There's so much uncertainty with the coronavirus and, and the pandemic that is taking place. We ask for wisdom for, uh, for your church, uh, for us as individuals, and for our uh, leaders, those who are in authority over us. We pray for your wisdom and your guidance in all matters. We pray these things in Christ's name, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Now at this time, I invite you to stand if you're able and sing with us number 262, Holy, Holy, Holy. Again, the words are in your bulletin. Our scripture reading today is from the book of 1 Thessalonians, 
chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As usual, if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to, to follow along with me. If you do not have one in front of you, the words are also printed in your bulletin. Again, that's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do the same, to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, and that each of you should learn to conduct, control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family through Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do more and more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and that you will not be dependent on anybody. Let's pray to the Lord. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that we now have the opportunity as your people to, to open it together, uh, to study it, and to see what you have for us in, this, in these verses. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give me words to speak and that you'd open all of our hearts and minds to what you have to say to us. It's in Christ that we pray. Amen. A couple weeks ago, my family had the opportunity to, to go down to Gatlinburg. Uh, we stayed in a cabin with, some, with Allie's family and, and got to enjoy some time, uh, some time together. This is a trip that we had planned months and months before we knew there was going to be a, a pandemic and those sorts of things. But thankfully, with, with things opening back up and the fact that we were kind of be secluding ourselves in, in a cabin for the most part as a family, we decided to, to still go down and it was a very enjoyable, relaxing trip. One of the things that we did in order to kind of, again, spend time uh, not out in public too much is go to the National, Great Smoky Mountains National Park and, and go on some hikes. We did some easy ones as a family. We have some younger kids. Miles is two, of course. So, so venturing too far away from the car is never a good idea when you got a little one like that. So we did some, some nice easy loops and, and paths, and we really enjoyed that. Uh, but then some of our older cousins wanted to go and, and do a more difficult path, and, and Josephine wanted to go right with them. So, uh, so I volunteered to go as well. So it was just the, the six of us, my brother and sister-in-law, their two kids, and then Josephine and I. And so we went to this, uh, went to this spot in the National Forest to go hike, and, and by the time we got there, it was a little bit later in the morning, so the parking spots were all packed already, and, and we ended up having to just pull off along with dozens of other cars just kind of on the side of the road so that we could go to this loop and go on a hike. It was a beautiful hike. It was about a mile and a quarter, almost mile and a half, you know, uphill to this waterfall where you could go and take pictures, and it was It was awesome. Uh, and so Josephine and I are just walking along together and talking, and it, it was a really, really great opportunity to just uh, spend some time one-on-one with her. Uh, then as we got further and further up the mountain, the skies were getting grayer and grayer as we went, too. We got up to the waterfall, we took some pictures, and we thought, before too long, we need to head back down the hill. And so probably a minute, not any more than a minute away from the waterfall on our hike back down the hill, we start to feel raindrops hitting the back of our head, uh, and, and pretty soon the skies opened up and let loose, and it was pouring. And this was not just a little bit of a rainstorm. This was full-fledged monsoon. The, the dirt hiking path that we were on was soon a crick, you know, with water flowing down. Hail even started to come down, and we were thunder and lightning all around us. Needless to say, our nice, enjoyable walk turned into a very different experience going downhill. Uh, we, we made the mile and a half or so down to the car in much quicker pace than on the way up, uh, trying to get out of the rain. And the whole time Josephine was, she was scared, right? She was, it was not the kind of experience that she was expecting when we set off on that hike. Even when we got down to the back to our, my brother-in-law's car, uh, it was even stuck in the mud on the side of the road. And we had about a dozen or so other people, some kind strangers help push us out of the mud and back onto the road so we could get down. 
It was certainly a inter- an interesting experience. And I share that with you this morning uh, because the passage that we're looking at uses a term to describe life that doesn't translate directly into the English. If we look in both verses 1 and 12 in this passage, Paul here talks about how, how he instructed these people how to live or how to live a life. And the, the passage there, that word is actually the word to walk. And so what Paul is doing here is using a metaphor, is using an idiom that is used throughout Scripture uh, and th- through both the Old and New Testaments. And that is to describe our way of life and particularly our relationship with God as as a walk, going on a walk. Scripture uses that often. And in the Old Testament, figures like Enoch and Abraham were described as people who walk with God. And Paul himself uses the term some 36 times in his writings. Now think about this trip that I had with Josephine, right? We're walking up the hill. We're walking up the mountain. And it was a, an awesome experience, just talking, encouraging her to keep going, Um, And then when we got to the top, there was this beautiful sight of this waterfall that we got to experience and enjoy together because we were walking side by side. But it wasn't always easy, right? On the way back down, things changed very quickly and very dramatically. But we were still side by side through it all. And it was me holding her hand and even at some points picking her up and carrying her down the hill that we were able to get back down to the safety of the car. Things, our walk did not go as expected, but, but the reason she was able to make it was because I was right there by her side. I was holding her hand through both the good times on the way up and the bad times on the way down. See, that's why the Bible uses this metaphor over and over again, because it's a great description of what it means to, to have a relationship with the Lord, to walk with him, right? To, to know Christ and to, to be in a relationship with him is to walk through life with him. And that's what Paul is getting at here in 1 Thessalonians. That the way we live our lives is we should live in order to please him. We should walk with him in such a way that, that we can honor him, not just with our actions, but with our, with our attitudes and with our thoughts as well. This metaphor teaches us that, that pleasing God is not, excuse me, it is a way of life. That we can't just reduce holiness and sanctification uh, to a manageable list of do's and don'ts. Right? This passage deals a lot with holiness, this idea of being, being distinct, being separate, being like Christ. But we can't reduce that sort of, uh, that, that outlook to just a way of, excuse me, to just a list of do's and don'ts. That's exactly what the Pharisees did. Right? Think about these religious leaders in Jesus' day. They had created a system of rules in order to follow God. And the, the problem wasn't with the rules themselves. One of the problems was that the rules themselves could be obeyed, right? They created a, a, such a system that, that they could be obeyed and, and so confer some sort of righteousness or some sort of perceived righteousness. Think of what Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. He says, as far as uh, describing his own accolades and his own accomplishments, he says, as far as righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. I was perfect. Right? That's what legalism does. That's what reducing holiness to a to-do list does, is that it, it presents us with a list of, of things that we can accomplish on our own. A, a box that we can check, and so doing, think that we have done all that we need to do. What that does is it compartmentalizes God. It puts our relationship with God in a box. But that's not how the Bible describes holiness or sanctification. It's, it's a way of life. It's, a, it's walking with God through life. And that is so much more than just a list of do's and don'ts. It's an, it's an attitude. It's a perspective. And it's a, way of, it's a way of life that encompasses everything, not just what you do on Sunday mornings or during your quiet time with the Lord. This passage here in 1 Thessalonians deals a lot with, with holiness. And, and it talks about sanctification. There's lots of words that Scripture uses or that we use to describe this process. We talk about things like spiritual growth, maturity, becoming like Christ, or growing in grace. Those are all ways to talk about the same thing, which we call sanctification, which literally means to be made holy. Scripture is clear about two things in regards to holiness, right? God himself is holy, and that he calls us, 
his people to be holy like him. Exodus 15.11 teaches us that, and many other passages, teaches us that God's chief attribute, his defining characteristic is his holiness. Exodus 15.11 says, Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? All right, God, and then, so God himself is holy, but he also calls us to be holy, calls us to something greater than just a list of to-dos and, and a list of don'ts. He calls us to be like himself. In 1 Peter 1, 14 through 15, Peter says, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. What does it mean to be holy? The word itself simply means to be separate, right? To be set apart or different or distinct. There's no one like God, Scripture says. He's perfectly unique. He's sinless. There's no one like him. If any of you have the name Michael, it's actually a name that comes right out of Scripture, and it's actually a question. Michael, Mikael, means who is like God, right? It's a rhetorical question. Obviously, the answer is no one. There is no one like him. God's people, then, are, are called to reflect this holiness. We're called to be separate, to be distinct, to be different than the people around us. In the Old Testament, this was represented by, like, the kosher laws, right? What people ate, what pe- how people dressed, the way they acted were meant to set God's people apart from the people around them. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 5, we see that, that we have been chosen by God to be holy. It says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Right? God's people are chosen to be holy and blameless. It's in him, it's in Christ that's made possible. We're not made holy by following a list of rules, not even the kosher laws, but in and through Christ and through his redeeming love that he made explicitly uh, clear to us on the cross, right? It's in Christ and through Christ that we are made holy, not by a list of things that we do or don't do. That's why it's important to put things in the right order, right? I'm, I'm setting the stage here for the rest of our passage. Justification comes first, right? Justification is just a fancy way to talk about being saved, being born again, being made new in Christ. We are saved in order to do good works, right? We are made new in Christ by his grace through faith so that we may produce fruits of righteousness. And it's not the other way around, right? We don't do good works in order to be saved. That's legalism and it's a dangerous trap for us to fall into. Rather, we're made alive in Christ We're made new. We're born again so that we may do good works in him. The good works are the fruit of a relationship we already have with God through Christ. Paul, again, in Ephesians 2, verse 10, reminds us of this. He says, for we are God's handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So I share all of this with you to set the stage for, for what Paul is getting at here in this passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. He's talking about holiness. He's talking about sanctification. And it's something that is done in Christ, right? It is in him and through him that we are being made holy. But that doesn't mean we don't have a responsibility our, ourselves to respond to what God is doing in our life, right? Holiness and sanctification is not just a the summation of, of our actions. It's but our actions should reflect the holiness that God has provided for us, that God is is doing in us through Christ. That's why the order matters so much. And so what I want to do today is, is talk about the two sides of sanctification. And the first side of sanctification is what Paul spells out for us in Ephesians 4, verses 3 through 9. Excuse me, 3 through 8. And that, is, and that is part of sanctification. Part of being made holy is learning to avoid sin. This is what I call the negative side of sanctification. Not because, it's, not because it's bad, but negative in the sense of subtracting, of taking away. Part of what it means to lead a holy life, to respond to the grace that God has given us, is to avoid sin, right? To avoid those things that are not pleasing to the Lord. 
In order to avoid sin, first we must allow God to define sin for us. Paul makes it clear in this passage that that these instructions, these commandments are not from him. This is not just Paul's opinion or human perspective on these issues. These commands and instructions are given by God. He talks about the authority of Jesus. He talks about it being God's will and that anyone who rejects these commandments is in fact rejecting God himself. Right, but that's the problem so often, isn't it? We've, we've taken it upon ourselves to define what sin is. When we define sin for ourselves, the, con- the definition constantly changes. Right? What is acceptable today was unheard of 100 years ago. And think about what society will find acceptable or unacceptable another 100 years from now. Paul spells this out for us in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 1, 28-32, he says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they they not only continue to do these things, but also approve of those who practice them. Right? Paul there is talking about how we have, even in his day, people have started to define sin for themselves. And if we're honest ourselves, it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden, right? With Eve and Adam taking from the tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, and in doing so, deciding for themselves what was right and wrong. It's really a form of idolatry, idolatry of self, deciding right and wrong and not submitting ourselves to the, to the authority of God. And so Paul here says that the commands he's given are not his own, but they come from God. It's God's will that we avoid things like sexual immorality. The word here that Paul uses is really, it's a catch-all term. In the Greek, it's porneia. It's a catch-all term to describe any sexual behavior that is outside the context of marriage between one man and one woman, right? It's easy to define yourself. Uh, it's, excuse me, it should, I should say it's easier to define yourself for what you're for rather than what you're against, right? Pornea is this, this catch-all term. Sexual immorality can encompass a lot of things and the list of behavior that would be considered outside the bounds of marriage is never-ending and ever-changing, But as Christians, we must stand firm in the fact that sex is a gift from God, right? It's meant to be enjoyed regularly between husband and wife within the context of marriage. It was established in the creation account and affirmed by Jesus during his ministry. And anything outside that context then would be considered porneia, sexual immorality. And what does Paul say here? He says that we need to avoid it, right? We need to flee from it. Why does Paul single out sexual sin, right? He could have used any number of examples. It very well could be that he's addressing a specific problem here. Remember, Timothy had just returned with a report on the status of the church, and maybe something that he said, something that he he reported to Paul brought this issue to light. But we also need to remember that sexual sin is not a new phenomenon, right? A lot has changed over the last few decades since the sexual revolution in the Americas of the 60s. But the culture we live in now is actually probably a lot more similar to the one that Paul lived in than to what it was, say, a hundred years ago. Pagan temples were often staffed with male and female prostitutes, and it was normal and expected for men to have multiple partners in addition to his wife. Sexual images may have were even found decorating the dining rooms of wealthy homes, not just in pagan temples. You see, people, the problem has not changed. It's still the same problem, and it's always been there. We just have different access to it, right? Instead of having to go to a temple, all we need to do is have access to a computer or smartphone or a Tinder app. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, addressed this problem and got right to the heart of it. He said, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body 
than your whole body to go into hell. See, sexual sin is just as much a matter of the mind and heart as it is of the body. That's why Paul says we must not give ourselves over to passionate lust. Right? It's possible to never physically commit adultery with another person, but be just as guilty of it. As one commentator put it, if we're in doubt, we should just ask ourselves, does this action please God? Right? Is what I'm doing honoring and pleasing to him? And if the answer is no, whether it's sexual nature or not, we should avoid it. So we, not, we must avoid it. We must flee from it, as Paul says. And there's many reasons why, why we should avoid it, avoid sexual immorality. But I want to highlight just a couple for us today. First is that when we commit sexual sin, we commit that sin against ourselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20 says, Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside of the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own, but you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Second, we know that sexual sin is destructive, right? It destroys relationships. It shatters trust. Sex is not just an empty physical act, as, as maybe our society may try to tell us. As much as some want to reduce it to that, we can't. We, we just can't. Sex is more than just a physical act. It's a spiritual and emotional act as well. And so sexual sin violates the trust of a relationship. It takes advantage of others. Paul points out here that, that, uh, that, that our sexual sin can be destructive to other people and it can be abusive. It could take the form of adultery, but there could be any other number of scenarios as well. Whether it's sex trafficking and the abuse that takes place in the sex industry, it is never a victimless sin or crime. So it's against ourselves, it's destructive, but it also damages our relationship with God. Even when you think you're getting away with it, God knows. Right? I don't mean that in a creepy, big brotherish kind of way, but God does know every human heart and every one of our thoughts. And we're fooling ourselves that if we think that we can get away with lusting after others or gratifying our sexual desires outside of the context for which he'd established it for us. And so we, we must flee from sexual immorality, right? We must flee from, from sin in all forms, in all kinds, and experience the freedom that only Christ can bring. God has is, God is in Christ redeemed us. He's, we can experience forgiveness. We can experience redemption. But that freedom isn't freedom to just go on sinning, right? It's not just to continue in the direction that we've been going in. All right, we must use our freedom to honor God and, and allow him to work in and through us. We often equate freedom with the complete and total removal of any sort of constraints, the, the don't tread on me sort of mentality. You do you, and as long as you're not harming anyone, it's fine. But true freedom isn't just the absence of restrictions, right? It's not just, not just the freedom to do whatever you want. All right, think about a fish. Is it truly free to live on land? Right, you could take a fish out of the water and throw it on land, but it's not going to survive for very long. A fish was created and made to live within the context of the ocean or the water. And to take it out of that context is to do it harm. In the same way, we were created to live in relationship with God. We were created to know him and serve him and be obedient to him. And to take us out of that context, right, the freedom we have in Christ isn't to be removed from those constraints, but it's freedom to live within those restraints that he has given us. Freedom in Christ means we've been set free from the power and consequence of sin so that we may now live for Christ. And so do not use your freedom to sin. Use your freedom to live for Christ. So Paul here talks about the negative side of sanctification, right? Fleeing from sin, in particular sexual sin, he talks about here. But there's also the positive side of sanctification, and that's what I want to leave you with today. That sanctification is not just avoiding the bad, but it's also pursuing the good. Think, I think about my relationship with Allie, right, and, and as my wife, right? It's not just enough that I avoid harming her, right? It's not enough that I just say, all right, all right, sweetie, I've, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't wasted away all of our money. I haven't been abusive to our children. I haven't done this, this, and this. You should love me, right? 
right? That's not enough, right? It's not enough to just avoid bad things. But in my relationship with her, I must also try to pursue good things, right? Pursue love and serving her and and doing what I can to be the best husband and father that I can, right? That's the positive side of that relationship. The same is true with our relationship with the Lord. When Jesus was asked about the greatest commandment, he didn't pick a thou shalt not do something. There are plenty of those to choose from. Instead, he picked a positive command. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commands. So Paul here goes on, says that you as a church, right? He's talking to these believers. He says, you must avoid sexual sin. Flee from those things. Don't take advantage or harm your brother and sister in Christ. And then he goes on to say, you must also love each other just as you've been commanded by God and do so more and more. It's the very command that Jesus taught his disciples in John 13:34. You must love one another. Real love, Christ-like love, is to seek God's best for another person. Not necessarily what they want or what they think they need, but what is truly best and God-honoring. That's not always an easy thing to do, right? It's not always easy to love someone with the love that God has for us in Christ, because sometimes that means not giving them what they want, but giving them what they need. And being there for them and walking alongside them as best as possible. Paul here goes on, not only are we called to love one another, but we're also supposed to conduct ourselves in our everyday life with holiness. We're called to work, right? Holiness is is not an excuse to avoid our regular responsibilities. The call to love God doesn't mean that that we wash our hands and avoid the everyday earthly responsibilities we have for our for ourselves or for our families or our communities. Right? Not everyone is called into full-time ministry. Not everyone is called to move halfway around the world and to serve in the mission field. But we are all called to be the light of Christ exactly where God has placed you. As somebody once told me, we're called to grow where we've been planted. And so Paul here admonishes the church. He says, you're loving each other. That's great. Keep it up and keep doing it more and more. And while you're at it, work hard. Right, right. Continue to fulfill your everyday responsibilities so that you're not a burden to others. Instead of being a burden to others, we should seek ways to be to, to lift those burdens, to to lift others out of their their situation of need. If we see a need, we call, we're called to meet it. And so, in closing, as I invite the the praise team to come forward for our closing song, I want to read one more scripture or passage for you. It's Galatians chapter 6, verse 2. Paul says we're called to carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. What does it mean to love one another? What does it mean to truly fulfill the commandment to love your neighbor as yourself? Well, it's called, we're called to carry each other's burdens. And so one of the ways we can do that is, is sharing the gospel and speaking truth and love into another person's life. Acknowledging sin for sin and for what it is and pointing people to the grace and forgiveness that's found in Christ. That's how we lift spiritual burdens. But we can also lift material and physical burdens by being willing to to take what God has blessed us with and, and with open hands be willing to share that with others. And in doing so, we are truly loving people as Christ loved us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for for your word. I thank you that you are not you have not given up on us but that you are making us more like you each and every day. None of us have arrived. None of us are there yet. And there is so much work to be done in our own lives. And Lord, thank you that you, through your Holy Spirit and through the work of Christ on the cross, are making us new and making us holy and just as you are. We thank you for this in Christ's name. Amen. We do need the Lord. And so let's stand and let's sing about our need for him as our closing song, Lord, I Need You.
of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You may go in peace.